0: In Genesis 15 today, as we continue in the story of Abraham that we just started last week. Um, And in a minute, I'm going to read Genesis 15. And and as I get ready to do this, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis 15. I just wanted to mention that the reason I like, especially when we're going through these extended passages, to just read the entire passage at the beginning is because it's a reminder for all of us that the thing that bonds us together, the reason this is an important time is not because I or Gary or anyone else has come up with a great message for you. It's because we have God's word. We are here because we believe God has spoken. And so we want to start. Before I say any commentary or, or things that I think are true about the passage, we just want to start by reading God's word and allowing that to be the center of our time. So if you, if you have a Bible, I do invite you to follow along in your Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen because the passage will be scrolling through as I read it. So I'm going to read Genesis chapter 15, and I'll read the whole thing 1 through 21. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up to the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces." On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is God's word. And as we get ready to, to walk through some elements of this passage, this is just a reminder, all right, we're, we're in Genesis we've transitioned to the part of the story where Abraham is the key figure. And when Abraham is the key figure, the key word that comes up is faith because Abraham represents faith. He's called Abram now because it's not till chapter 17 that God changes his name to Abraham, but it's the same guy. He is the man of faith. He is the model of faith. And when we talk about what it means, what faith means for him and what faith means for us, faith is lived out in the times between when the promise is given and the promise is fulfilled. In other words, faith is lived out in between the time that you order something from Amazon and you're told it's on its way (laughs) until when the package arrives at your door. The time in between that, which if you're a Prime member is not very long. But that time in between it, that's when faith is practiced, between when the promise is given and the promise is fulfilled. And, and it can be easy in our culture, in the 21st century in the US, to, to begin to get this idea that um, faith is irrational. Faith, you know, we, we have facts and we have evidence, but then we have faith, which is a completely different thing. Faith is blind and, and you just don't think, you just believe. And that is not the biblical conception of faith. That would be more like sitting at home and saying, I want a water filter from Amazon and I'm just going to believe it will show up at my door. That is blind faith. Real faith, biblical faith is based on evidence. You got a receipt saying it's on its way and you're believing in the time before it arrives. And the center of faith is that we believe that God has made certain promises. And before we get those promises, we're believing that He's going to follow through on that. But the central question for us in this, and the central question that chapter 15 of Genesis deals with, is the question how can we have confidence in God's promises? That in between time is difficult, it's dark, it's uncertain, it's murky, it's confusing. How can we, in that time of uncertainty, have confidence in God's promises? Because if we're honest, we've all had times that people have promised things and haven't delivered. How do we really know God will be faithful to what He's promised? And maybe even just to to up the stakes, there's a lot of promises that God gives His people, but, but there's one New Testament promise that I think is kind of at the center of it all. And I talked about this a little bit last week, but Romans eight twenty eight says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so that encompasses just about all the promises of God. That encompasses him giving us eternal life at the end of this. That encompasses him taking our trials and our difficulties and bringing beauty out of that. That encompasses the fact that the struggle with sin can sometimes just be really, really difficult, but at the end of that narrow road, there's life. God promises to work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose But you may be in here this morning thinking that doesn't seem to be happening. And you're going through a trial and you just can't see how this is God doing something that's going to end in good. Or you're fighting the good fight with sin, you're fighting against temptation, and you're just beginning to wonder, why am I even doing this? Is this even worth it? Would it be better just to cave in to temptation? You may be going through a time of uncertainty and asking this exact question. All right, God, I know you've made promises. How can I have confidence during that murky in-between time that God's going to follow through? And what we get in Genesis 15 is we get God reminding Abram of two different promises. And each time him giving Abram something to hold on to that gives Abram confidence that God truly will follow through on his promises. And we'll walk through both of those as we now walk through the passage that we read. And the first promise that God reminds Abram of is in verses 1 through 6. And it's the promise of offspring. He reminds Abram that he has promised him children even though Abram is an old man and his wife is an old woman and they haven't been able to have children yet. So the beginning of this passage is God appearing to him. And it says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your great reward. Which seemed like great promises from God. Do not be afraid, which probably, it doesn't mean that Abram was in imminent danger. Simply means, sorry, your future is uncertain. You're in that murky in between. Don't be afraid. Don't have anxiety. It's gonna be all right. And then he reminds him, I'm your shield and I'm your very great reward which in some ways is a helpful reminder because this is stuff that God has already done for Abram. And if you read it, in fact, I encourage you, maybe later today, just go back, open up. It won't take you very long. Read Genesis 12, 13, and 14 because that bridges the gap from last week to this week. And at the end of Genesis 12, Abram saw God being faithful. He saw God being his shield because Abram went down to Egypt and lied to the surrounding people saying that his wife was his sister because he thought people were going to kill him to get to his wife. And even in Abram's lack of belief and sin, God was his shield. And then in chapter 13, Abram was with his nephew Lot, and God was blessing them, and they actually had too many possessions, they they had too much to stay together, so they were going to split up, and Abram, in a great act of faith, says to his nephew Lot, you decide where to go, I'll go the opposite way. And even though Lot chose the path that looked like it was going to turn out better, God was Abram's shield and took care of him to get him to the land of promise. And then in chapter 14, God was Abram's shield because Abram's nephew Law was taken away as a captive in a war that broke out. And Abram grabbed about 300 men and did a miraculous rescue mission to get Lot back. That rescue mission does not succeed unless God is Abram's shield and his very great reward. And just think of the beauty of what he's saying here. Abram's living in the murky in between. God comes to him. He says, you don't have to be afraid. I'm your shield. I'm your reward. These are great things. These are great promises he gives to Abram. And so you know what the very first thing Abram does is? He complains. I'm not even kidding. Let's read it. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus? And then he says, you've given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. All right, God, nice promises. You're my shield. You're my reward. I don't need to be afraid. But God, you made promises to me and I'm not seeing it. Sarai is still not pregnant. We are still childless. And we don't know how much time has passed since when Abram left his hometown. But it's possible about 10 years has passed and he still hasn't seen anything happen. And this is a complaint. There's no way around it. It is a complaint. But I want you to see it's a complaint out of a place of faith. And if nothing else that you take away from this morning, you can take away that sometimes it's okay to complain. Sometimes you can complain to God. We, We typically, especially those of us who are parents, we're consistently telling our kids, stop complaining. There's a complaint that comes out of a place of faith. And, you know, for example, if you, were, if you were wanting to lose a lot of weight and get in shape, and so you hired a personal trainer, and the trainer told you, here's the foods that you eat, here's the meals that you handle, um, here, here's the exercises that you do. If you do all this, and you do this four times a week or five times a week, at the end of two months, you will have lost the weight. And then a month into that, you are just not seeing the results. There would be a way that there would be a complaint of faith that you could give to the trainer, You could say, I'm doing the things that you're saying. I'm willing to put in the work. I'm trying and I want to still believe, but we're halfway into this and I'm not seeing it. Give me a reason to keep on this path. That is the complaint of faith. That's a lot more than just saying, this is hard. That's heavy. I'm hungry. I don't like peas. I don't like vegetables. This is just miserable. (laughs) Abram is not saying, this is hard. He's saying, I'm doing this and God, I'm not seeing it. And by the way, you know know one of the reasons why we know this was a complaint by faith? Because he he begins the complaint by saying, Sovereign Lord. He doesn't say, God, I'm beginning to wonder if you're in charge. He says, I know you're in charge. You're the sovereign Lord. You're the one and only God. You're in charge of the world. You're all powerful. God, you made these promises. I'm not seeing it happen. Help me continue on the path of faith. Give me something to hold on to. Give me a reason to have confidence in your promises. And God responds to him in verse four. It says, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, speaking of the servant that Abram said would be his heir, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And it says, he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars if indeed you can count them so shall your descendants be. Not only are you going to have a son, Abram, but that son is going to have a son, and then they're going to have sons, and you're going to have all kinds of heirs that they're going to number as many as the stars in the sky. You're not going to be able to count how many descendants you'll end up with. And just as a by the way in this, um, Abram comes to God and he says, I'm still waiting for the promise. It still hasn't happened. And what God could have done is God could have said, go into the tent and check on Sarai. She's got a baby bump. (laughs) He could have said, the promise you're waiting for, I'll just give it to you right now. But he doesn't. It is at least 15 more years until the son is born to them. He still is going to wait. God doesn't say, I'm going to solve your problem by just making the promise come right now. He basically just reaffirms the promise in a very evocative way says just because you're still in the darkness doesn't mean i've forgotten about this i will fulfill my promises so abram is still a man who has to live in that in between but look at what we're told in verse six abram believed the lord and he the lord credited it to him abram as righteousness In other words, here's what this powerful verse, maybe maybe the central verse of everything that we talk about today. Here's what this verse is saying. Abram believed the Lord. In other words, he looked at himself and he said, I'm too old to have kids. My wife is too old to have kids. Even when we were young enough to have kids, we weren't able to have kids. I look at all of that and I say, no kid is coming. But God, you promised, and so I will believe you more than I believe my eyes. I will believe you more than I believe my instincts on this one. I will believe you. I will trust you. It doesn't even say that Abram went out and did something. It just says Abram believed the Lord. And when he believed the Lord, the Lord credited that faith as righteousness to Abram. And this is sort of an accounting term in the Hebrew. It's the idea that on the official ledger next to Abram's name, it read righteousness. This is a righteous man. And and this is important to point out. Abram was a good man. But by the standard of God, Abram was not a righteous man. It doesn't say here, Abram went out and lived righteously. And so God credited that righteousness as Abram's righteousness. He says he had faith, and God took that faith and said, on the official ledger, it will say righteousness. This is one of the most powerful verses in the whole Bible because it points towards the idea that faith is at the center of our relationship with God. And if Abram was coming to God and saying, give me a reason, give me something to hold on to so that I can have confidence that you'll fulfill my promises— The first thing that Abram was told is that God's promises are accessed by faith. In other words, the reason why Abram could believe this was going to happen was not because he was going to go out and make it happen. And it was not because he was so good that God would surely give him what he deserved. It was simply because he believed. It wasn't because Abram worked for it. It was because Abram believed God, and God took that faith and said, I'm going to treat that faith as if you were a righteous man. Abram, even though you lied about your wife, and even though God knows all things God knew he was going to do it again, it happens again in Genesis 20, even though you're going to falter in faith, even though you're going to make mistakes, even though you're going to have times that you sin, even though all that's going to happen, you will be treated as righteous because of your faith. In fact, this is such a powerful idea that the apostle Paul picks up on it in Romans chapter four and he applies it to all of us because Paul is wrestling with the question, do we get adopted into the family of God? Do we get eternal life because of what we've done or is it because of our faith? And he refers back to Abraham. He says, what shall then we then say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, If he was declared righteous because he did good stuff, he had something to boast about, but not before God. She says, "So, so how did Abram get that righteous pronouncement? And then he quotes our passage in verse three. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not Abram went out and was exceptionally obedient, and God credited that to him as righteousness, but simply Abram put his faith In God's promise, he believed God over his own eyes, and God counted that as righteousness. So then Paul applies that to us. He says, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. We have confidence in God's promises because God's promises are accessed through faith. If we had to depend on the idea, I know God's gonna be faithful to his promises. I know he's gonna work all things for my good. I know he's gonna make my battle with sin pay off. I know that he's gonna take these trials and bring beauty out of them. And you know why I know he's gonna do that? Because I've been good, because I've been obedient because I've tried my hardest, because I've mostly not sinned, because I'm better than the people around me. If you are depending on that, then your confidence in God's promises is in a very precarious position. But if you instead say, I never could have earned eternal life, I never could have earned." For forgiveness for my sins I never could have earned adoption into the family of God I don't deserve to be declared righteous I don't deserve any of this I can't do it and so what I'm going to do is throw myself on the mercy of God and say the only way I get there is if you get me there God's promises are accessed through faith and Abraham experienced that and that's what we hang on to also But this is just the first of two visions that God gives to Abram. The second one begins in verse seven. So he starts with the offspring and he says, the reason you can believe this is because the center of your connection to God is faith and not works. But then the second promise has to do with the land. And God brings this up in verse seven. It says, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to take possession of it. I'm going to bring you here and you are going to have this land. And once again, in verse 8, Abram complains. He says, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will take possession of it? He's still saying, "Are you promised me land. It hasn't yet happened. It's occupied. It's not my land. How can I know? How can I have confidence while I live in the uncertain in between? And just as back in verse 5, God brought him outside and showed him the stars, God's going to show him another visual aid. And this one's much different and much more graphic. So in verse 9, the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Bring me a bunch of animals, Abram. And Abram does so, and in verse 10 it says, Abram brought these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And at this point many of us are like, can we just go back to the stars thing? That was nice. Just look up to the sky. This is this is bloody, this is gross, this is confused, this is violent. What what is happening here? Gets a bunch of animals, cuts those animals in half and then makes a pathway with the broken animals on either side. And even in verse 11, it's kind of a curious, just a little detail there that Abram drives away the birds of of prey that come down, which may just point towards the idea of Abram being zealous for the purity of the covenant that God was making with him. And and here's what's going on here. It's very foreign to us, but what's going on here is an ancient Near East covenant ritual. And the way it would normally work is this. Um, that, that there would be two parties. So, so let's say there's two kings and they decide they're gonna make a covenant with each other. They're gonna make a treaty and the one king will say, I will not cross this line to attack you and you will not ca- cross this line to, attach, to attack me. We, we make this covenant, we make this promise to each other. And then the two kings would do exactly what Abram's done here. They'd take a bunch of animals, they'd cut them in half, they'd put them on either side and make a pathway, and arm in arm, they would walk through the middle of that path. And what they would be symbolically saying is, may I become like these animals if I break my promise. In fact, if you're wanting even more on that, I I won't read this, but in in, uh, Jeremiah 34, there's a reference to this kind of covenant. In Jeremiah 34, 18, the idea that you'd be saying, may I be cut in half? I would sooner die than break my promise. And they would walk through together. So so the the Jewish reader at this time, as they're first reading this long ago, would have been thinking, oh, I know what's going to happen. What's gonna happen is that God and Abram will walk through the middle of the pieces to show that they're both making promises to each other and they both would rather die than break the promises. But what we get instead is something very strange because in verse 12, we're told, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. It's gonna be pretty hard to walk through those animals when you're asleep, and the idea here isn't simply that Abram was tired and he nodded off. The idea here is that God put him into a sleep. God put him into a sleep and then God started making promises to him. And, and I read through them early. I won't read through them in detail, but basically he says, all right, I'm gonna give you a preview of, what, of what's gonna happen. Eventually your descendants are gonna end up in Egypt and they're gonna be there for hundreds of years and it's gonna be really difficult. It's gonna be really painful. They're gonna be slaves, but, but I'm gonna punish that nation. I'll bring them out of slavery And then after that, he talks about the idea that part of the reason why Abram is not currently inheriting the land is because God is being patient and waiting till it's time for judgment for the nations that are now there. And just think about this for a second. Just as God didn't say to Abram in the first part of the passage, "Um, go check the tent, check with Sarai, she's pregnant. He didn't give him the promise right there. He doesn't give him the land promise right now. He says, it's gonna be a long time. And it's going to be a road with ups and downs and with great things and with horrible things. And there's going to be pain and difficulty. The promise is still not right here. You're still going to have to be patient. Your descendants are going to have to be patient. But none of that patience undercuts the promise that's made. God makes all those promises to him. And then when we get to verse 17, the real amazing thing happens. Because so it says, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot, I, I'm sorry, Corrected that earlier. I don't know why it says fireboat. There's an autocorrect thing going on. <laughs> a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now, the smoking firepot and the blazing torch is clearly meant to be a symbol of God's presence. Um, and just think of the next book of the Bible. If you're familiar with Exodus and the Moses story, Moses has an appearance from God. And how does God appear to him? Yeah, burning bush. And then the way that God leads the people of Israel throughout their time of wandering is in a pillar of fire. God appears by light and by fire. That's the symbol of his presence. So a symbol of God's presence goes through, performs the covenant ritual and goes between the animals. And did you notice who went through with him? Nobody went through with him. Where's Abram? Abram? He's asleep. He's not going through with him. This is bizarre. This is different than what anybody would have expected. The idea of this is Abram's on one side, God's on the other side, and they're both saying to each other, I would rather die than bake my promises. But God has Abram go to sleep and goes through by himself, which is a powerful and profound way of God saying, The promises depend entirely on me. Here's the reason, Abram. You weren't sure how to be confident in my promises. First of all, I'm gonna tell you, here's how you can be confident in my promises. They're based on your faith, not your works. So you're in this position because of your faith. But let me give you a second reason why you can be confident in the promises of God. And that's that the promises of God are achieved through God's faithfulness. God says, here's how you know I'm gonna do this. Because I'm not making you dependent on on, I'm not making it dependent upon you at all. And you can just imagine Abram going through his mind and saying, well, but I already lied about my wife and said that she was my sister. What if I do that again? And God says, it doesn't matter. In fact, Abram does do it again and God still keeps his promises. Abram could have said, well, well what if I, I fall into sin? And what if I do some things that I'm really embarrassed about? What if there are times that I don't have faith in you the way that I should? And God says, I went through the fire. The promise depends not on you but on me. The promise was not, Abram, if you go out there and make it happen, it'll happen. The promise was, it will happen because it completely depends on me to make it happen. This is part of the beauty of not only this passage, but what this passage points us to and the reality about God. That God is the kind of God, first of all, who doesn't demand that we do a bunch of impressive things to get in on the promises. But God is also a God that when he promises that something is going to happen, he makes it certain, he makes it secure by his own faithfulness, not making Abram live up to anything if he's going to do it. So uh, uh, I wanna talk about this for a few minutes, but let's just return to that question. And let's return to ourselves and say, all right, we're we're living in that murky in-between We've been given promises, and we haven't yet seen them come about. How do we trust God in this in-between time? And if we truly believe that we're in this position by faith, and if we truly believe that it depends only on God to make sure the promises happen, that gives us hope to persevere. So you right now might be looking at a trial. You might be looking at a trial that has to do with your health, that you say, I don't know how getting cancer is God working all things for my good. I don't know how dealing with this chronic pain is God working all these, th- these things for my good. Or you're dealing with financial woes and you're saying, I don't know how not having a job is God working all things for my good. I don't know how this different difficulty or a really bad boss or these really hard things that are going on in our marriage, I don't know how this is God working all things for my good. Those are the moments that instead of jumping ship, instead of giving into bitterness, instead of beginning to take a different path other than the narrow path God has called you to, You can persevere on faith because you can bank on the idea that the reason you can claim the promises as your own is only because of your faith. And the reason you can claim the promises as certain is because God has obligated himself to you of his own free will. This means that if you're in the darkness right now and there's an area of sin and temptation that you're just, you're in the thick of it. You're saying, I want to fight the good fight. I, I don't want to just give in. I, 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 want to, I want to win the battle against this thing. I want to get freedom. Um, and, and then you go through periods of time where you just ask, why am I even doing this? The battle with sin, the battle with sin is not for wimps. This is tough stuff. And when you're in the middle of it and you're saying, well, most people around me, they're not waiting for, for marriage to have sex. Why am I doing this to myself? Uh, most people just kind of normalize pornography. Why am I doing this to myself and trying to keep myself from doing this? And most people get drunk on occasion. What's, what's the big deal with this? Most people strike back at others when they, they say mean things about them. Most people gossip and slander and try to undercut their bosses. Why am I working so hard to do this when it doesn't seem to be immediately paying off? Why don't I just step off the narrow road and carve my own path based on my own wisdom? And the reason why you don't do that is because you are having faith. You are having confidence that the God who promised he would work all things for your good, the God who promised that it's the narrow path that leads to life, that God is the God who has obligated himself saying, it's not based on you, it's based on me. It's the same God who said to Abram, I would sooner die than not do what I told you I was going to do. God would sooner die than not work together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In fact, those of us that live much later than Abram, we get to even take it to another step. Because Abram could have looked at this and said, God would rather die than break his promises. We get to look at God and say, God chose to die in order to keep the promises. God sent his own son to die for us so that the promises could be fulfilled. We don't have to even keep it theoretical and say God would do this. We can look back and say God did do this. God gave all. And if there's any point that we're doubting and we're having trouble and we're in confusion and we're saying, do I really know that God has my best interest at heart? Do I really know that God would be willing to do anything for me? All we have to do is look back to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and we have our answer. Because the God who did not withhold his one and only son, how will he not, along with him, freely give us all things? We have confidence in God's faithfulness because he's made the promises depend on him. And and just as it's significant for us to look back and remember that, we get to do that in a very physicalized way now because we're about to take communion. And if you're gonna be helping with communion, you can head to the back to, to begin to prepare to help with that. But communion is such a powerful thing that God has given us. It's, it's almost a visual aid, just as he showed Abram the stars, just as he did the ritual sacrifice. Through all of that, we, we get a visual. We, we get a physical reminder of what's been done for us and what we've been promised. We get the reminder of the events when Jesus, before his death, sat together with his disciples, passed around bread, passed around a cup, and said, this is my body and this is my blood. We get the visual reminder that tells us that Jesus gave it all in order to bring us forgiveness and adoption into the family of God. And you know, as we prepare to look back, as we prepare to look behind us at what Jesus has already done, The Lord's Supper, communion, also gives us hope for the future because as we look back at God's profound faithfulness, that gives us the strength to look ahead and have hope and faith that the God who was faithful in the past is the God who will continue to pour out his mercy and his goodness on us in the future. So let's take a moment and pray as we get ready to celebrate this time. Father God, Thank you so much for the grace that you've shown us in Jesus. Thank you that you have given us access to your great promises, not because we've earned that access, but because you have shown us grace. Thank you that when we couldn't save ourselves, you sent your son to save us through his sacrifice. And Father, we pray that you receive honor through this time of communion. And we pray that we receive the help and confidence that we need to continue to walk in faith in the promises you've given us. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen.